Welcome to the hills. I know I'm talking to people watching online. Thank you for joining us. If you're watching at South Lake or at West Fort Worth, a special shout out to you because this is the last Sunday that the West Fort Worth campus meets in the rented facility that the church was launched in. The trucks are coming this week to start packing up. And in just a few Sundays, they will have their first ever Sunday in their brand new debt-free facility. So, if you are a guest, every year, the second weekend of the year, we have a harvest offering where we fund all of our missionaries and church plans. But two years ago, we coupled that with what we call our Courage Campaign. We're trying to make some serious uh, improvements in our capital facilities, building a new West Fort Worth campus, giving the South Lake campus a facelift and increasing their size, and then doing some work in the children's ministry here. And so we asked you to pledge above your harvest offering to the Courage Campaign, and we are extending that campaign for one more year. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. But typically on this weekend, we bring in one of our church planners or one of our missionaries to speak. And this year, our choice was Brandon Watts. Brandon is an amazing young man, a very successful career in the technology industry, heard God's call, took his family, moved them to Brooklyn, New York, and about three years ago, we helped Brandon plant a church there. It's already several hundred people prospering and doing amazing work. Brandon, his wife, Ty, and his two boys came to Texas on Friday to celebrate one of his son's birthdays. And late Friday night, I got a call from Brandon. He was distraught. I could tell his wife was crying. And one of their dear, dear friends and co-workers at the church had a four-year-old son who stopped breathing Friday afternoon, and he died. And their young church has never been through anything that traumatic. And Brandon just said, Pastor, what do I do? And I knew immediately what to say. Brandon, you need to go home. You need to go to the airport tomorrow. And if there's any expenses for changing your flight, we'll take care of it. But you need to go home. And you need to shepherd and pastor your church. So that's what he's doing today with our blessing. Which meant that yesterday morning, after a jog with a couple of my buddies, I came up to this office knowing I need to write a sermon on the mission of the church. And I had no idea what I was going to say. And so this takes me way out of my comfort zone. 30 years ago when I came to this church, I made the elders a promise. I will never stand in this pulpit and wing it. I will never stand before the people of God at the Hills Church unprepared. Well, friends, this is the closest I've ever come in 30 years to breaking that promise. Okay? I tried to honor God with my study and my preparation. In fact, I had an uh, opportunity several years ago to speak at an event that kind of had a Pentecostal flavor to it. And the people wanted to pray over me before I spoke. And I love that. But I learned something about Pentecostals. They don't just lightly put their hand on your shoulder and pray. No, they push me to the ground. And they put their hands on my head so heavy, I thought, while you're at it, pray for healing for my neck sprain. And... This one brother started praying, Lord, whatever his prayer, just take it away. We don't want his words. We want your words. We want your words, God. You speak, not him. Take his study away and you just speak. And the whole time I'm saying, Lord, don't answer that prayer. Don't answer that prayer, Lord. Do not answer that prayer. (laughs) Now, I know what he meant. He meant if God doesn't anoint it, it doesn't matter what you say. But I believe God honors preparation and study. I don't think the Holy Spirit anoints laziness. And yet I know this, no matter how much I study and prepare, 
Every Sunday when I walk up to preach at West Fort Worth, at South Lake or North Richland Hills, I walk up those steps and I say the same prayer. Lord, this is my best, but it's still just a few loaves and fishes. And it's not enough to feed this multitude. So God, you're going to have to multiply it so that everyone gets fed. He'll have to do that again. So with that in mind, would you bow your heads? So God, what I'm going to give you is my best. And my best is not enough. So please anoint it. Multiply it. Use my words and open our ears to hear the word of the Lord. And now God, in a special way, I want to pray for Epiphany Church in Brooklyn. For the Peralta family who has suffered such a tragic loss. And for our dear brother Brandon Watts, who is teaching his young church how to grieve with hope. Because life is hard, but Jesus is the Lord, and he has conquered the grave. In his name we pray. Amen. So Brandon was going to preach on the mission of the church. So I began to think about that, and immediately it came to mind a statement I've heard And honestly, I don't know who first said it because I've heard it in many places. But it goes like this. You often hear the question, does the church have a mission? That's the wrong question. Because Jesus gave the church her mission. It's non-negotiable. We're to go to everywhere people live and we're to compel and teach them how to follow Jesus. That's the mission. The question is not, does the church have a mission? The better question is, does God's mission Have a church. A church that will embrace and accept the mission of God. Now, I'm at a season in my life where I've had a chance to reflect on what I've done with my life. And to ask, what if? And I don't have any regrets. I've had opportunities to go into the marketplace, to work with nonprofits, uh, to teach at universities. But I've always felt a call on my life to invest In building a local church. And here's why. Two big takeaways today. Here's the first. I believe the hope of the world is a missional church. Jesus came to build a church. And he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I love that metaphor because gates are a defensive weapon. Jesus is not building a church that's going to cower inside its walls. And just try to hang on until Jesus comes back to rescue us. He's building an aggressive church. A militant church is going to march against hell. And hell will put up walls to stop the church. And he can't do it. Because Jesus is building a church that's going to advance. Now I know that there's a sense in which we're all part of the universal church. And and so for example here in Tarrant County. When I drive past any church. Then I know at that church they preach the scripture and they hold up Jesus. I pray for that church. And I'm thrilled to be a part of the universal church. But when the word church is used in the Bible, most of the time, it's talking about a local group of people who've decided to commit to gather together and encourage each other to pursue the mission of God. I believe nothing brings the kingdom of God into a community like a local church That is on mission with God. Jesus said I'm going to build that church. And it is going to make angels marvel and demons tremble. 
In Ephesians 3, Paul says, God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Do you understand? Something is going on right now that is bigger than we can see with our eyes. That God is using churches like this to display to angels and demons how brilliant he is. And then later in the same chapter, Paul says, Now, all glory to God, who's able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Not just glory in Jesus, glory to God in the church for all generations, forever. Do you understand that what God is doing through us is going to bring him glory, not just till Jesus comes back. It's going to bring him glory forever. The church is a big deal. I thought of this a lot this last week. Many of us on staff were at a conference called Mosaics. And at that conference, we learned how to do a better job of building multi-ethnic churches. And it just hit me. With all of the racial tension and division and disharmony in the world today. There is no institution on earth that can do what the church can do to bring people together and to show the world what reconciliation looks like. God receives glory when the church is the church. And the church is the church when she's on mission for God. Because the hope of the world is a missional church so what does it mean to be on mission for God and what does it take so when I got to my office yesterday I just began reading the book of Acts and I would just jot down things that I noticed and after reading the first about six chapters I just want to share with you some of the things I jotted down because it dawned on me to be a church on mission all we have to do is Acts right so here are some of the things I jotted down number one was we must depend on the Holy Spirit that the critical need of the church will always be supernatural empowering. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is against spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. And we cannot do it in our flesh and strength. We need the strength of God. So Acts starts with Jesus saying that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. So if we're going to remain on mission, we must recover a belief in an active Holy Spirit. Not a retired Holy Spirit. But a Holy Spirit that comes to equip us and enable us and embolden us to pursue the mission of God. One of my favorite stories, not just in Acts, but in the whole Bible, is in Acts 4 when the church gathers to pray. And it says while they were praying, the Holy Spirit filled the place And the room shook. And we don't know what to do with that. But I'm going to contend that extraordinary ought to be ordinary in the kingdom of God. We should not be afraid of the Holy Spirit. We should want, we should pray for, we should expect the Holy Spirit to do things in the church we could never do or see on our own. So, 
I've done a series in the past on the Holy Spirit, kind of an introduction, but I'm working now, and we're going to have the next year or two, a series where I want to just be bold about leading us into what does it mean to be led by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to employ all the giftings of the Spirit so the church can stay on mission? Because we need the Holy Spirit. Second, a church on mission has got to prioritize unity and community. Churches on mission do life together. So you see that first church and they're gathering daily for worship and encouragement and prayer and witness. It says they would meet in the temple and they would meet in their homes. And I like that because I like big room and I like small room. I like big room church. I like to get together with hundreds and thousands of Christians. And I can't even name them all. But I see them singing and praying and lifting up the same Jesus I lift up. And I get energy from that. And I get inspired by that. But I need small room church. Because it's in a small room where confession and intercession and real authentic honesty takes place. That's why we've asked all of you to get into a community group. You cannot be a disciple on mission with Jesus by yourself. And as I read through Acts, I noticed Satan's always trying to attack the church. But every time he attacks the church from the outside in the book of Acts through persecution, the church just grows. And so the devil starts attacking the church from the inside. In Acts 6, for example, you have people in the church. Now, they've come from different countries and they speak different languages. And one part of the group started feeling slighted and not getting attention. And the devil is trying to sow the seed of division. So the apostles immediately call for spirit-filled people to address it. And they aggressively protect the unity of the spirit. Now, going forward, if we're going to be a church on mission, we're going to have to aggressively protect the unity because we cannot... Be a church on mission going forward without becoming a more diverse church. Because our city is becoming a more ethnically diverse community. And God has put us here at this place at this time to reach this city. Now here's what happens when different cultures and ethnicities start meet together. There's almost always unintentional tension. Because we come from different cultures. We have different traditions. And we got to figure out how we're going to navigate that. Especially when it comes to worship style. So, uh, at this conference last week, I went to hear a class by Derwin Gray, who came to speak at our men's conference last January. Now, Derwin planted this big mega church in North Carolina, and he's a black pastor, and 55% of his membership is white. And what they intentionally do is use different genres of worship to reach different ethnic groups. So inevitably, every Sunday, somebody's unhappy. And almost every week, someone comes up and says, Pastor, it could be a black Christian, it could be a white Christian, it could be a brown Christian. Pastor, I didn't like to worship today. He says, that's okay, we weren't worshiping you. And that's how they deal with it. I'm just telling you. That when you look at the the other world religions, notice how mono-ethnic they tend to be. And then look at the Christian faith and how it's embraced people from every race and tribe and tongue. And one of the ways the church shows the world that Jesus is different is the way we do different. The church on mission must embrace 
unity and community. The church on mission must pray much and pray big. Prayer is mentioned 48 times in the book of Acts. It says in chapter 2, they were devoted to prayer. It was an absolute passion of the first Christians. You see, we're an army that advances on our knees. And the reason hell can't stop us is because hell has no defense against our best weapon. Now think about this. Right now, we have brothers and sisters that love Jesus in parts of the world that are risking their lives to gather like we've gathered. The enemy can take away our Bibles. The enemy can take away our church buildings. The enemy can take away our freedom and put us in prison. But the enemy can never take away our access to the throne of God. There's no place we can be or nothing we can go through that we can't speak straight to God through the name and the blood of Jesus. I love in Acts 4 how when they faced persecution, their first response was not to picket or to rant on Facebook, but to have a prayer meeting. I long for the day when every ministry of our church starts with prayer. It doesn't matter if you're working with parking cars in the parking lot or you're preparing communion trays or you're teaching third graders or you're leading worship on a stage. The first thing you do in that ministry is get together with others and pray. It should be our first response, never our last resort. So you've heard the 2020 vision that's directed our church the last number of years. Well, 2020 is next year. It's time to start thinking and praying about a new vision. The elders have asked me to start thinking about that. And so, aren't you pray for me? A week from Monday, November 17th, I'm going on a four-day retreat, just me and the Lord. And the first two days, all I'm going to do is pray and fast. And you say, well, pastor, what are you going to accomplish? I just told you. For two days, I'm going to pray and fast to put myself in a posture then to hear the Lord. Because prayer matters. And churches on mission pray a lot. And they pray big. I noticed also churches on mission speak Jesus consistently and courageously. They retain an unwavering conviction that Jesus is not an option. So in chapter 2, Peter says, be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Later, Peter would declare, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So, the persecutors told the first Christians, stop that. You can feed all the hungry you want. You can visit all the widows you want. But stop the Jesus talk or it's going to get ugly and here's what the leaders of the church said judge for yourself whether a man should obey God or obey you but we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard and when they said 
you keep talking, we're going to get rough. They called prayer meeting. Go back in Acts 4 and read what they prayed. They did not pray. Dear God, deliver us from persecution. They prayed, God, give us boldness and proclamation. God, give us the courage to keep talking Jesus no matter what it cost us. The word witness is found 39 times in the book of Acts. People, it is your job description. You were sent out on mission to be an ambassador for the story of Jesus. Now, I'm just going to be bold here. One of the things that we have to push back on is the popular myth that we can witness for Christ and never talk about Christ. Now understand, I believe in doing good to my neighbor, whether my neighbor ever accepts Christ or not. Not a bait and switch. We love people no matter where they are, no matter how they respond. But let's be very clear. It's not kingdom work if we never mention the king. We do what we do in the name of Jesus. We do it for the glory of Jesus. And we believe everybody needs to hear about Jesus. And so, you say, well, that, that doesn't come natural to me. It doesn't come natural to anybody. It's supernatural. That's why you need the Holy Spirit. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. Take Jesus at his word. Step out of your comfort zone this week. Start the conversation and see if Jesus will not show up in the person of his spirit and give you the courage and the words. This is what churches on mission do. And then finally, I noticed they practice, model, and expect generosity. Churches on mission are liberal churches. Now, I don't mean their theology. I mean their generosity. The first Christians embraced sacrifice because they embraced the one who was sacrificed for them. It says no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. Now, that's not just because they were benevolent. It's because they were living on mission. Remember, at Pentecost, people had come from all over the world and they had heard about Jesus. 3,000 people were baptized the first sermon. Now, these people are going to go back home. But first... They have to stay and be grounded in the message of Jesus. They have to be taught the way of Jesus. Where are they going to sleep? What are they going to eat? So the first Christians then said, let's just share everything we have to make sure that we can prepare people to go home as ambassadors of Christ. They gave faithfully, bountifully, joyfully. By the way, they gave transparently. It's popular today to say, well, pastor, it's none of your business what I give. But in the early church, people would bring their offerings right there to the feet of the leaders. Barnabas sold a field, brought it right to the feet. They called him encourager. Salvation is free. But the mission is expensive. But you see, once the king has your heart, the kingdom will have your treasure. Because the hope of the world is a missional church. And that leads to my second big takeaway. And that is the hope of the church is a sacrificial people. I'm reminded just reading Acts, God's mission needs a church. But the church cannot bring hope to the world if it's full of consumers. Consumers. 
who think the primary reason the church exists is to take care of their needs. The church that topples the gates of hell is filled with investors. But this will always remain the church's greatest challenge. Because the church is a volunteer army. Think about it. The only reason you're here is because you want to be. No one makes you come to church. If you give anything to this church, if you do anything for this church, it's because you chose to. I'm not your boss. I can't fire you if you don't do what I want. I'm not some general who can shout at you, get out and give me 50. Nobody has ever saluted me. Now, I have gotten a few hand gestures, but no salutes. You are volunteer enlistees into the mission of God. But I have a calling for which I will answer to God. To prepare you, to equip you, to call you to join the mission of God. My charge before God is not to guilt you, to cajole you, to harangue you. But it is to inspire you and to challenge you to believe so much in the worth and in the future of the kingdom of God that you will tie your own worth and your own future to it. I can't apologize for constantly and courageously imploring you to be outrageously generous to the church. Because the church is the hope of the world. And you are a part of a church that is bringing hope to the world. I believe someday when I go to heaven, I'm going to meet people from Kenya. And they're going to say, I had a third grade teacher who brought me to faith in Jesus. She went to a college in Uganda called Livingstone International University. And she found Christ there. And she brought Christ to me. And I brought Christ to my family. And we brought Christ to our village. Thank you. I'm going to meet a family that was raised by a single mom from Brooklyn or San Diego or Seattle or New York City or uh, Miami. Literally, the corners of our country where we've started churches. And they're going to say, the church you started reached us in our hardest hour. And we raised up generations of Christ followers. Thank you. And I'm going to spend eternity with people all over Tarrant County that found Jesus because a church was on mission. Every week at our church, people get saved. Every week. You saw some incredible baptisms last week. Last night at Saturday service, a family of four came that we didn't even know had been visiting our church. And they just realized this is time. God is calling us And they came and they confessed Jesus and the whole family was baptized. God was saying, I need 
I need a church on mission to send this family to. And God trusted us with them. And so, that's why I'm begging you to be courageous with your generosity. I'm begging you to support the Courage Campaign. Now, in a moment I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to take up another offering. And you can fill out these envelopes. Now, here's the thing. I want to say four things real quick. Number one. Whether you're a part of the Courage Campaign or not, you need to give to this offering because the first $2.6 million of this offering goes to our church planners and our missionaries. That's part of what it means to be a part of our church is that we fund the mission of our church. And we need a lot of money to support all the good people and the good works we're doing. So every one of us should be a part of this offering at some level. But I'm asking you to go even deeper. I'm asking you to give more to Courage to help us get our campuses in capacity to receive more for Christ. If you made a pledge two years ago, I'm asking you to fulfill it sooner than later. If you've come in the last couple of years and you haven't joined the Courage Campaign, I'm asking you, this is your on-ramp. Do it now. Help us bring more people like God brought you to our church. And then there's a lot of us like me and my wife We made an outrageous offering. God was faithful. We fulfilled our pledge. And God has put it on our hearts to do more. It's not a burden, it's a joy. Because the hope of the world is a church on mission. And so, I go through different books of the Bible in my personal devotions every morning. And for the last two months, I've been in the book of 2 Samuel. This last Monday, I came to 2 Samuel 24. I don't think it was a coincidence. It's a story where King David has made a foolish decision. God disciplines him. And now God sends him out to a place to offer a sacrifice to end the discipline. When the man finds out the king is coming to his farm, he says, Oh, it's all yours. I give it to you. I'll give you the land. I'll give you the animals. And the king says, No. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God offerings. That costs me nothing. If I give God a sacrifice and it didn't cost me, he wasn't honored. And it got me thinking. So I went to Bible Gateway and I typed in the word donation, hit search. The word donation never appears in the Bible. I make a lot of donations to good causes. I'm glad to do it, but they don't cost me. God never asked for a donation. I typed in the word contribution. Showed up 18 times. 15 in the Old Testament primarily gathering resources for the tabernacle or temple. Three times in Romans 15, Paul was taking up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. Typed in the word offering. 782 times. What God wants is an offering. What's an offering? An offering... Is when you say, God, I'm not going to have that because I want you to do this. An offering is a sacrifice. So last night after the service, a young college student came forward and gave me a courage envelope. And I was stunned at what he pledged. And here's what I know. A young man going through college, working part-time. 
There's only one way he'll fulfill his pledge. He'll have to decide many times next year, I won't do this so I can give God this. And I could have said, oh no, not now. Wait till you graduate. Wait till you get a good job. Then you can be generous. Why on earth would I do that? Why on earth would I rob him of the joy and the growth he's going to experience next year as he makes sacrifices for God and finds how God shows up in his life? You cannot grow people for God unless you challenge them to be generous to God. And what he's going to learn is he's going to learn how good God is. He's going to learn how faithful God is. Because he stepped up and was courageous. You know, when I was a boy, we taught the book of Acts a lot at my little church. And yet we taught it like it was a book full of exceptions. Stories about the things God and the church used to do. I no longer read the book of Acts as a story of exceptions. I read it as a story of examples. The book of Acts is not about what the church used to do. The book of Acts is about how the church ought to be. What she can be. And so I'm going to close with one of my all-time favorite stories. William Booth founded the Salvation Army. He's on his deathbed at this point in his life. He's blind. Every morning when he woke up, he would ask for his Bible. He loved the book of Acts. It was his favorite book. He knew his Bible so well that he could turn by feel to the book of Acts. And he would run his fingers down the pages. And he would pray, do it again, Lord. Do it again. I believe God can. I believe God will. I believe God will always have a church on mission. I believe we can be that church. So I'm going to pray. If you're a server, would you take your place, please? And as soon as I finish my prayer, they'll begin to pass the plates for your courage offerings. You can put on that your gift. You can put on it your pledge. We're going to sing a song or two while we take up the offerings. And then I'll come back up with a few last words. So let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you that we can know that we can give our lives to that which matters forever. Thank you that we can partner with your spirit for the most important work in the universe. Thank you that we can experience supernatural joy supernatural courage and thank you God for the way you're going to prove yourself so faithful and so good to every person who trusts you courageously so take our offerings and multiply it Do it again, God. Do it again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.